they had these pharaonic entertainment things where they had dancers. And what always cracks me up is you see, you know, the tomb paintings or whatever, and you see the people doing back bends and all this crazy stuff, and they say, oh, well, that's not oriental dance. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I am honored that you are part of our dance tribe. Hello, dear listeners. So welcome back to Baladin's Live podcast. And we have a new episode with amazing guest Warda. Warda is a professional national and international award-winning ballet dancer. She has traveled to Egypt over 30 times to research and train and has won awards by top Egyptian professionals for her dancing. She's the director of the Shahrazad Dance Company and has written the origins and history of ballet dance book along with Egyptian professor Dr. Hassan Halil. Ward is a mentor and teacher of a number of prize-winning dancers today. And in this episode, we talked all sorts of things related to dance and life. Starting from Warda's uh, traveling lifestyle as a kid, as a part of military family, and uh, her further travel explorations, and how it influenced her life use and her dance too. We also talked, obviously, about dance, about the origins of dance. Obviously, we talked about her book, The Origins and History of Ballet Dance, as well as uh, modern things in dance and bringing innovation to dance. There are also some interesting notes about current discussions uh, of what is the proper name of our dance style, ballet dance, oriental style, raksharki, or whatever else, how can we properly call it. And I also hope that our conversation would be a good reminder for you for importance of critical thinking on whichever topic we are talking about. I hope this episode will bring you a lot of thoughts to think about. Don't forget afterwards to reach back to me and our amazing guests. Don't forget to screenshot and share with your friends this episode. And without any further delays, let's just dive into our conversation. Hello, dear Warda. Welcome to the Baladance Live podcast. I am very happy to welcome you to our show and very excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you, too. I really have listened to almost all your podcasts, and I love them. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, that's so cool to hear. <laughs> well, in this case, you probably know that uh, very typically or very commonly, I'm starting a conversation from the sort of very beginning of personal ballet dance journey. And I would love to ask you, do you remember your very first ballet dance class and how you even got involved and got that idea that, oh, I want to study ballet dance? Well, sure. Okay. So I had done other dances growing up all my life and it wasn't until I actually came back 
from the military where I was in the Middle East and I saw belly dance and then I came back and went to college. So in college, my friend told me, hey, my sister-in-law dances at a hookah bar and if you lived in the Middle East, you should come and see it. So I went to the hookah bar and oh my gosh, there it was. And I fell in love and then I found my first teacher. She was dancing there. Her name was Ava Fleming. And um, I went to her class and right away, like, I don't know, I just started taking her beginning intermediate and advanced class. I started taking like, you know, four or five hours of class a week right from the first day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So I was in college and um, I never, ever, ever thought that I would get serious about it, but I was definitely hooked. Hmm. What was your original plan for your future profession? (laughs) Well, I actually have a degree in education and um, meaning as a teacher. And uh, I teach like, you know, English, uh, reading and writing, math, whatever. You know, I teach all of that, too. Um, I don't know. I originally started out wanting to be a musician or an artist, to be honest. Um, yeah, I went to college and I studied, you know, painting and I studied musical composition. I played violin from when I was like, I don't know, six or seven. So I was going to do all of that. But then I just took all these classes with no like goal of actually what I was going to major in. And then I had a daughter and my mom said, you need to get a major that you can get a job in. Mm-hmm. so that you and your daughter will always be okay. So I did. Hmm. Well, but you basically ended up combining all those things, like your degree in teaching and your original <laughs> idea or plan to be in the arts. <laughs> you you managed to put it all together. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't put it together, but somehow all the roads led me to this place. Hmm. And um, a lot of it was kind of, we could say fate and a lot of it was choice but yeah i mean it's magical and i'm so glad that i that i found belly dance i mean it's amazing did you mention earlier uh something about military at the middle east did i heard correctly (laughs) can you can you clarify what like a little bit more about that part (laughs) sure sure so my story is actually crazy. I um, I wanted to get out of the United States for a number of reasons, and um, I joined up, and I, all my time was outside of the U.S. Um, I basically grew up outside of the U.S. in Spain, in Greece, in Bahrain, and I traveled a lot, you know, Jordan, India, etc. And yeah, I was in the military. And the thing about it that was really interesting is um, it made me really... I mean, this is like such a ridiculous thing to say. It's so obvious, but it made me really against war. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually asked for a conscientious objector, like to get out. Um, And I eventually got out. But while I was in the Middle East is when I saw belly dance for the first time. And I was actually introduced to the culture before I was introduced to the dancing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean... It's true. Anyway, so, yeah, I saw dancing there. And when I came to the hookah bar, which is here in Arizona, we have a very large Arabic community 
and the main university, Arizona State University, has the largest Arabic population of any American university or, you know, United States university. So basically, um, when I went to the hookah bar, I felt like I was back in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and on the Mediterranean in my life and in the military. And I was treated very well there. And I was treated, yeah, oh yeah. Um, I was a buyer for a while, and I would go to what was called Lulu Avenue in Bahrain. And, um, you know, we would pull up to a shop and they'd bring out the tea and cookies. (laughs) And you would negotiate how much you were going to pay for Mm -hmm. car parts that you would bring back to the base. I worked, my partner was an Arabic guy. And um, he just taught me all about the culture. And then I would go back to the base. And then we worked with a guy from India, too. And I was the only girl on almost the whole base. So it was really, it was very touchy. But it was those men from those old cultures that taught me, like, you don't have to be nice to the guys. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to, I don't know. They just looked out for me. And I don't know, it was really nice, like, they told me don't go to the parties on the yachts because <laughs> hmm. like the princes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You would get invites like to parties and stuff. And it I was see. like considered a bad idea. Yeah. So anyway, I got all this cultural information and I saw the dancing. I saw it at weddings. I saw it there. So when I went to the hookah bar and I saw all the Arabic people and we have a lot of Latin people and we have a lot of people Oh, my God, from every country you can imagine. I felt very at home again. And so the whole dance thing just took off for me. And the whole community welcomed me. And right away, it just started kind of building. Mm. You also mentioned that you, you kind of put it together as if you grew up outside of U.S. So I assume like all your travels to Europe, to Middle East, they were pretty much at a very young age. <laughs> or did you mean like grew up as an adult person already, like, you know, informed after like teenage and uh, young adult years? <laughs> well, it it was right out of high school. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't even go to college until after I got back. So, yeah, I feel like I grew up. You know, I had mm-hmm. certain political ideas and then you go live somewhere else and you find out maybe it's not what you thought maybe it's not what it looked like and um i grew up real fast Mm, i see well Mm. your love to travel i kind of feel like it's also throughout your entire life uh, as a like red uh, thread let's say like connecting thread and uh, especially uh, when you start digging more into belly dance you travel a lot to middle east but this time there's different uh, like ideas and purposes and i know you travel many times to egypt uh, have you ever counted how many times you traveled to egypt in your life i know i'm over 30 30 times over um i pretty much stopped counting then but so I'm gonna say maybe 34 35 times Mm, yeah it's crazy you know when I was growing up we never lived in one place more than a year or two so I went to like eight different grade schools three different high schools I went to four different universities um you know all over the place and I traveled is very consistent in my life and once I was in Egypt and these guys told me, you know, you have a special ability to connect cultures. 
And I was like, oh, wow, what a thought, you know. So it kind of became an idea to me that I could bring the belly dance and the belly dance culture kind of back to the U.S. where it's not that well known on the U.S. Um, West Coast, say, we have a lot of tribal, American tribal, and, you know, that's really nice. But my niche is I'm really interested in bringing the culture and, you know, the dance back with me. And I would also say it's not just Egyptian dance, which is my main niche. It's my main interest. I started in folklore in 2007 with like Ahmed Shalabi, Saidi, and then, you know, Magda Natev doing Hagala and all this uh, Skandarani. I did Moroccan. My first class was actually Sufism by Mohammed El Sayed. Um, because when I went to my first festival, this lady, she's called Princess, I guess, and she lives in Dubai now, but she's Egyptian. And she said, well, all belly dance comes from folklore, so you have to take folklore. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay. So that's what I did. But now I'm trying to learn Oriental. So the reason I love to go to the festivals, it's I know some people don't like it, but I love it. I love meeting all the women from all the other cultures. And I love... Um, I'm going to give Ukraine a little commercial here because um, I love their training and I love how advanced they are in their technique. So on one hand, I love what I get from the Egyptians and I love to learn from like cabaret dancers who have no ballet or anything. But then I love also to go to like Ukrainians or ballet class so that I can get the finesse. And then so I can see where does it where does it separate where are they similar and where are they different? I mean, it's such a fascinating journey. And I feel I learn just as much from all the other students at the festival as I do from the teachers. Mm. I learn, yeah, their costume styles, their makeup styles, how they present themselves, um, their movement vocabulary. I adore it. I love to learn from everybody. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's so uh, much true that... Uh, from like belly dance became such a form unique art form that although it has origins and it has big history and culture but it kind of became multinational international in a sense that yes we all refer to the base but we kind of blend with our own background and our mentality influence how we kind of interpret it on stage <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you know I, okay, in 2009, I started my dance troupe, Sharazad Dance Company, and I started because there's an Arab-American festival and they wanted a folklore troupe. So I started, you know, I gathered some friends and I threw them on the stage and that really gave me a big start. But the thing that I remember as I was studying folklore is that uh, Mahmoud Reda himself said, you know, I see a lot of people just doing the same old thing that I used to do, and I want to see innovation. And so I always tried to add a modern twist or to innovate. And my first interview on Dandana TV, which I was awful, but um, the guy said to me, it was uh, Joseph Najar, I'll never forget. And he said, you know, while what you're doing is authentic form, you have found a way to make it modern, which brings the young people into it. You know, here, like I said, in the U.S. So if I were to use just like 
super old music and repeat the same bass moves and do the same thing, I would lose the younger generation. And so not only do we bring something to it from our culture, we bring something modern and we have to bring something modern because we live, we can't live in the past. We live in the modern world. Mm. Yeah, but it's also really important and great that this tendency of modern, bringing modern also is in sort of harmony and peace with what we feel like doing. Uh, because it's definitely not about the sake of bringing, you know, some new elements to attract some other people. Like, as an artist, we also, like, always kind of feel and look like what um, reflects inside us. But naturally, it will be somehow adapted, or not adapted even, but bringing our individuality and dance, by definition, will change the, like, let's say, pure form of the dance. <laughs> That's true, you know, and I think, yes, of course, you, it's wonderful and it's important to have skills, to have standards. I mean, okay, yeah, like Picasso, he studied all these forms, but once, once you know what everybody's done, you can go a step beyond. And I think, honestly, without that, it's going to be so boring. Mm -hmm. It's really lovely to add something special and new. I'm not suggesting that we just ignore the past or whatever. No. But at the same time, yeah, I love innovation, you know, and I I really hope to continue to do that. And I hope I have some crazy dreams. So, like, you know, here in the U.S. for the halftime show, this is so silly, on, um, like, the football. You remember a few years ago we had uh, Shakira mm -hmm. and Jennifer Lopez. Mm -hmm. And then last year we had, you know, Snoop Dogg and uh, I believe it was Dr. Dre and Mary J. Blige or something like that. I don't remember. But um, it was a great show. Don't get me wrong. I just can't think of it right now. But maybe one day, okay, this is my dream. One day it's going to be me and my troupe and live musicians and we're going to do Arabic stuff. Wouldn't that be cool? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's send uh, uh, vibes to universe to make it happen. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, I also want uh, to dig a little bit, like come back to our slightly like previous conversation because I am dying to ask uh, one question, which is a little bit almost like on a uh, like uh, personal purpose out of my curiosity, but I think it's also really interesting and fascinating topic because you mentioned that... Uh, As a kid, as a child, you traveled a lot and you've never spent more than a year in one place or more or less the same. Uh, and at the same time, you developed this amazing ability to connect with people and to communicate and to like gather like community around you. So I'm really curious about the experience because for me, while I also was saying it's almost on a personal level out of curiosity, like we are currently, me and my husband, we are in a traveling mode and we typically don't spend more than like four or five months in one place, but we experience it as adults and with a background of like children with, let's call it, in a quotation uh, marks, like normal life, then it, you settled in one place, you uh, raise, uh, um, you uh, 
develop as a personality in one place like and all that stuff and then you take your life on a travel as a conscious decision for you it was kind of your childhood if i understood correctly was in this switching places all the time and then now you also afterwards settled in more or less one place so how was that experience in terms of uh, like finding people around connecting and communication um, part than you were a kid and how was the transition that you kind of decided more or less to settle in let's say one place afterwards <laughs> well okay that's awesome so here's the thing I was born in Virginia my father was uh, an officer in the Navy He was like a lieutenant commander or what have you. So we were in Virginia, Portsmouth, Virginia. And I think by the time I was two, we moved to Maryland. My brother was born. Then we went up to Massachusetts. And the point I'm making is we started moving right away. Mm -hmm. How did I like it? I loved it. I mean, yeah, it was really hard. Sometimes when you go to a new school, you get tested and you get bullied. So that was hard. And I don't have childhood friends like Of course, moving that often, I remember some names and I remember, I'm not in touch with any of them. So I think later as my father, um, he got his PhD and started teaching in universities. So we moved around, but not quite as fast. So my brothers and sisters didn't move as often as I did. We are four. I moved the most. And um, I think personally for me, I loved it and I don't mind too much living in the moment because I can connect very quickly with people and um, usually not always, but, and, um, and I'm comfortable. So for me, that relationship that maybe you made over 10 years, maybe I can make it in 10 minutes and I can let it go, mm-hmm. which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, So for me, honestly, yeah, I loved it. I wouldn't mind, you know. And the only reason I stopped moving is I got married and had a daughter. And um, we were trying to, uh, you know, buy a home and get things kind of stabilized. And it didn't go that well. We got divorced. And then uh, I raised my daughter and... uh, I got married again. <laughs> so, yeah, and oh my god. So once to be honest, we're waiting on a visa. So once we have that, I'll probably move again. Like right now I'm not even supposed to move, but my daughter is she's kind of older now. I mean, she's in her early 20s and she moved to Los Angeles. So to be honest, like When my husband gets his visa, we'll go to Los Angeles, probably. <laughs> mm. I hope. I don't mind moving again. And then she wants to go to New York. Okay, I'll go to New York. I don't even mind moving still. Mm. I really don't. It's just it's harder now because my father had a very good job and we could move and we would just sell a house and buy a new house, sell a house and buy a new house. Mm. Thanks for thanks for uh, telling a little bit more uh, it just for me like there is and I am sure like many listeners also would be curious to know because it's not that many people who 
like I met personally who had that specific experience and uh, I, I just asked literally like out of my own curiosity because we are in this currently also traveling vagabonding let's say mode but I was like always thinking recently like, okay for how long it may last and how like you know settling down and not settling down so it's always interesting to hear experience of different people and also how that experience at different stages of life influence uh, um, their life later and specifically even artistic life because I bet you managed to uh, find many different uh, uh, connections and friendships and meet people in dance world too due to the skills that you kind of developed early in your life of being able to uh, get in contact very quickly. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And the thing is, you know, and I'm sure you noticed this too, Every country has its good points and its bad points, mm -hmm. you know, just like a person. And, you know, once you've lived in Europe or once you've lived in the Middle East, there are things that you bring back with you that you never want to lose. Like the food they eat, it's a lot healthier and better than what we eat in the U.S. Or their relationships are a lot closer and a lot more humane than what we have here. Here we have great things, too. We have nature. We have high energy there's a lot of energy in this um there's a lot of good education there's a lot of money and work so i mean every country has something good but um so when i meet somebody from let's say uh, another country whether it's europe or the middle east or what have you i would connect with them about some of those things that they have that we don't have here and they mm. would probably feel that because they miss that too you mm. know mm -hmm. yeah Oh, so, wow. cool. yeah, it's pretty awesome. And I love the way you guys travel and the way you guys write about it and how you kind of pick up the different um, dances and cultures. Like when you were in Turkey, you picked up a little bit of that. And then, you know, you're in Brazil. That's actually an awesome place. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and it's so true how you also mentioned that every country has... Uh, something good and something bad, something pleasant and something unpleasant. And I think one of the most popular questions that we often receive on a travel note is like, okay, which country is the best to live at? And I was like, I don't know, we still kind of didn't figure out because there is no ideal place. And even in the place that stereotypically may be considered like, oh, not the best for living, there are still many good things there. So I'm pretty sure you had the same experience. And it's not only on the country level, it's even on the city levels too, <laughs> inside the same country. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I have my tickets for Egypt this summer already, and I'll be there for almost two months. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we talk about Egypt, one of the things I love about it is the intense creativity, all the things they make of hand, how they are very creative in their dance and in their music and how they interact with the audience. All this is a great creativity and creativity, I believe, possibly comes from letting go a little bit and letting, you know, kind of nature or whatever just take its course. So rather than having a plan and a structure, you know, going with the flow. 
So kind of like I said about my path coming together as kind of a mixture between fate and free will. Well, I have noticed, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it is, there's a lot of chaos in Egypt, kind Mm -hmm. of a lack of structure. And that chaos is what leads to that creativity. So, of course, like every person, you're... I kind of feel this is true anyway, like your best feature or your best characteristic can also be your worst because if you use it to excess, it's your downfall. So it's kind of the same. So that chaos, which can be like the worst thing about it and drive you crazy, but it also leads to creativity. And so it can be a best thing. Oh, so, so true. And I can so relate (laughs) to it. And not only Egypt, it's the same as Brazil. It has its own chaos. Oh. I remember I was, it was, I had the experience of like six hour rehearsal to come up with like two songs, which was driving me crazy because everyone was taking re- um, breaks every 15 minutes. And then at the end of this <laughs> rehearsal, we ended up with creating a mix of completely unplanned songs, which was like kind of like the beginning of a bigger project, not even in Brazil, but in Canada later for us. So it's like, you know, like it's that chaos of like, no, we need to be structured. Let's do like one hour rehearsal and be done. Like, why do we need to stop all that? But it was creating one like kind of creativity outlet. And it's funny you started talking about chaos because it was just the same in Istanbul. Like we spent, for instance, uh, quite a lot of time this year in Istanbul and our local friend was saying, oh, you call it chaos, we call it home. <laughs> and it's funny you're talking now also about Egypt. And I assume in so many travels and trips to Egypt, you probably visited not only Cairo. So I would like to ask you, like, what is your favorite place or city, uh, except of Cairo, or maybe some place or uh, spot in Cairo, which is your favorite place? (laughs) Wow. Okay. So that's hard again. But, you know, I went to Luxor not long ago, mm, 2019, maybe. And honestly, that place really fascinated me. It really fascinated me. I believe we were in Valley of the Kings and we went down this big tunnel and there's all these paintings on the wall. And you just realize or that the wealth that these pharaohs had was like beyond anything imaginable. Like it was just crazy, incredible, tremendous, like, football fields and football fields of palaces and wealth and just unbelievable amounts of gold and treasures. And then you go to the other side of the river and you see where the people were buried who worked for the pharaohs and they were dying very young and um, starving to death and, you know, malnutrition and overworked. And I kind of came up with this idea, wow, things never really change, do they, you know? You have to be really uh, careful where you go in this life or you end up just uh, another worker. And uh, so thank God for art. But the point is, is that it was really fascinating. And I was just like, my mind was boggled by the implications and the implications of where they believe life came from. So underwater and then like this pyramid shape came up because... That's how life started, and I'll just stop right there. But 
then I was talking to uh, Dr. Halil, mm-hmm. Dr. Hassan Halil, and he was, you know, he gets um, very abstract. But when I went to Luxor, his abstract descriptions of the dance started to make more sense. So it was very symbolic. And the things that he talked about, about how many dance moves were symbolic and about where the dance came from. Well, yeah, it would make sense that it kind of started in Upper Egypt, just like, you know, in India, it would start in the temples. And so in Egypt, it could start in the temples, you know, from a normal historical perspective, that made sense. So it became very fascinating, both as a study of, you know, history and culture, but also art. And I remember seeing another thing that connected to art, um, which was a mosaic. And they had depicted their enemies, which were like the Assyrians and um, Syrians and Iraqis, etc., you know, who came to the Egyptian land for trade or for war, or what have you. They were depicted up high on their toes. And you know how they always tell you in Saidi class that you have to have your feet flat on the floor and this and that. So I was like, well, why are they like that? And the guide says, because they didn't have the right to put their foot flat on our sacred Saidi soil. And I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. Mm. So they kind of, yeah, these little kind of symbolic things are shown in the tomb paintings. And I remember the same thing in Alexandria. They said to us, how can you tell the Greek or Latin tomb paintings apart from the Egyptian ones? And we're like, well, I don't know. So the tour guide said, because the Greeks or, you know, the Italians, what have you, Romans, were wearing sandals. And the Egyptians would never wear any shoes in the room or the salon of the pharaoh. So I was like, oh, okay. And then so certain people who, when they teach, would say, like, you have to be barefoot, just like in classical Indian dance. Now, whether it's true or whether later they added shoes, you know, because they're doing Hollywood-type movies, and then there's theories about that. So it's, it's just really fun because I feel like no matter how much you know, you keep unraveling all these cool little riddles. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like going into those old stories and you know, it just keeps spiraling. Mm. Yeah, and I remember also a conversation with Dr. Hassan Halil. We also had interviews with mm-hmm. him, and it was, uh, uh, as you said, very abstract. But then at the end, it kind of was making sense, like wherever his uh, side tangents were taking us on whichever journey. But speaking of ancient history, I also know that you're author of the book, uh, the origins and history of ballet dance. Uh, can you tell a little bit more about the idea of why you wrote this book and uh, uh, how was the process of creating it? Sure. So as soon as I started going to Egypt, okay, I loved my classes here and I loved my teachers. I trained with everybody. I read everything I could. But when I went to Egypt, I noticed it was different. Right away, there was a different feeling. So actually, that was 2007, and I felt like I was in this little golden orb of light. Like, it was amazing. And I was like, why does it feel different here, and what's different about it? Because it is different, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So I've always wanted to describe why and how it was different. So as I kept going, I kept learning more about it, and... um You know, I just wanted to add to all the literature that was also out there, but, okay, 
When I went to school to become a teacher, they said, for example, if you're going to teach your students about Native American culture, you are required or more than recommended that you find a Native American to come to your class and talk about it. And if you can't find somebody from the culture, then it's okay to talk about it in their absenteeism as best you can. So I thought, I want to bring more Egyptian voices and have that be part of the discussion. Again, so that idea of connecting cultures and, you know, from travel you want to, or I want to bring the culture of Egypt here in a more direct form from the words of the people in Egypt. And then, yeah, okay, you know, you can do with it as you please. But at least I would like to bring more of that to add to all the great and wonderful literature that's out there. So that's how the book idea started. And I was kind of writing it in my head for like 10 years. Once I actually started writing it, it took about two years to complete. Um, I did interview Dr. Hassan Halil for the first two chapters. And what I did was I did like the first two chapters on primitive stages and then like the pharaonic stages. And then I actually did a lot of training with um, people from other countries who brought many, many different Egyptian experts. So Tamari Aheya, Dr. Mogadawi, um, all these people. And I would just take notes and take notes. And even things I found online, like quotes, especially Dr. Mogadawi has a lot of really good stuff. I would just take notes. And... Um, so I ended up getting as many quotes from many, many, many people, and I just put it into chapters, so kind of starting with the primitive stages and then the pharaonic time and then the Roman and Greek times and then, uh, you know, kind of into the dance hall with the Gawazi and the Wallim and then, you know, coming into the golden era and now what some people call the postmodern era where we have Instagram and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and right before that, I had, I don't know what you would call it. I don't even remember, like the popular Shabi area uh, or era. And then, you know, like with Dina and going back through Fifi Abdu mm-hmm. into the golden era. So, yeah. And I thought it was kind of important that people, whether they agree with or disagree with or whatever, at least kind of have these ideas. Mm-hmm. And I bet probably one of the most popular questions you receive regarding this subject. So, okay, so where the Baladins originated from? <laughs> well, I think Egypt. Um, first of all, it's a very, very old civilization. So, yeah, of course, all these other cultures added to it. And, um, you know, it's not simply just... Egyptian moves because always Egypt has been a hub of travel and trade and all this kind of interweaving of ideas. So yeah, of course there's interwovenness and yes, belly dance exists outside of Egypt, but you know, one of the first things they told us when we got there is um, there is no other pharaonic country in the Middle East. Egypt is the only one. And so as much as, you know, 3000 years before common era or before Christ, whatever you want to call it, they had, you know, these pharaonic entertainment things where they had dancers. 
And what always cracks me up is you see, you know, the tune paintings or whatever, and you see the people doing back bends and all this crazy stuff. And they say, oh, well, that's not Oriental dance. And then you see the dancers of today. And I'm sure we can all think of these great dancers in Egypt doing back bends and mm-hmm. floor work and crazy. And it's like, dude, it's the exact same thing they were doing, you know, 5,000 years ago. Why do you say it's not part of it? Of course, it's all good. So bring it all on, you know. But the thing about it is like, yeah, we have people like Dr. Mogadawi and people like Dr. Hassan Halil who make a very strong argument for saying that this existed in pharaonic times, literally thousands of years ago. And I offer all their evidence in the book. Basically, they point to the tomb paintings. They say it means this. And one of the big things um, I heard is the word dance isn't mentioned. But as they mentioned, if you translate Arabic or Egyptian language into literal translation they don't say dance they say play so like we say play guitar they say you know play dance like dance they use the word play because what they mean by that is that it's a drama so it's kind of it's acting out certain situations and if you look at the even the the shabby dance or the cabaret dance, you know, they're acting stuff out. They're doing these little shows. And so anyway, the point is they believe that it started then. So I added that to my book. Yes, in common times, it comes from folklore. Absolutely, you know, all these other countries added to it. But if I go, okay, we have a very large dance community here. We have a very large Arabic community here. If I go to the local club owned by the Lebanese guy, he'll tell you, in the Middle East, nobody has dance performances on stage except for, traditionally that is, Lebanon and Egypt. You know, and when I, okay, here's what got me started on the whole bloody thing, okay? So I was going to the hookah bar to watch the dance and I was attending Arizona State University and there's a lot of guys from the Gulf and this one guy his his name was also Khalil he was from Saudi Arabia he was an engineering student and he told me he's like I really love to go and see you guys dance and what you do here in the U.S. it's great and it's beautiful and we love to watch it but it's not belly dance to us He's like, if you want to see what's belly dance to us, let me tell you, my family used to go from Saudi Arabia and every summer we'd go to Lebanon and to Cairo to see the belly dance shows, the whole family. And he said, and everybody knows that Egypt is the mother of all belly dance. Everybody knows that. So I was like, is he just talking trash, you know, or is this true? Mm. I really don't know. So put that question in my mind. So I went to Egypt, and most Egyptians and most Arabic people will tell you the same thing. I have a lot of friends from Jordan and from Palestine, and they'll tell you, yeah, we dance, but we dance at weddings or we dance in the house. They don't put the dancer on a stage and people come pay to see it. Now, nowadays they do, but traditionally that was done more in Egypt. That wasn't done in Iraq so much. That wasn't done in Jordan. That wasn't done in Morocco. They did have dance and they did have performances in all those places, but it was more like women dancing for women or women dancing at private parties. So we know in Iraq they had um, that one very beautiful dancer, Melayin, 
And she was, you know, like Saddam Hussein's favorite dancer. And she did all the private parties. But what they didn't have was like a public place where you go and eat dinner and you watch the dancer. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they had this dance, this dance, belly dance existed in all the countries. So even Khalil told me, you know, to you guys, belly dance is like something you see as a performance. But for us, that's just how we dance. He's like, if you go to any Saudi party, you know, they're going to get up and belly dance. But the women are going to dance with the women. The men are going to dance with the men. We're not going to put it on a stage like in Egypt or Lebanon. So that is what I'm kind of saying is like, okay. That's why them in Egypt being a pharaonic society led to the idea of dance being a performance art kind of got woven into the culture before um, the conquer of Islam. You know, when Islam came from Saudi Arabia and it made its way up through, you know, the Arabic Peninsula and all the way up, you know, through Iraq and into many places, even Southern Europe, um, this kind of dance didn't really stay on the same level. It had to be hidden more, had to be controlled more. Like even now, like during, let's say Ramadan, they don't really accept that you would post all the dancing and the pictures during this time now ramadan's over so you're going to see dance everywhere again Mm -hmm. so i mean it's just so complex again it's this big labyrinth or maze of ideas and all these cultures come together all of them contributed in a different way and the dance exists in all the different countries it's just expressed differently and i do think it was stronger and more developed and probably came first in Egypt mm-hmm. as, as a general rule. And Mogadawi makes an outstanding argument for that. It's like a 10-point bullet list on why. And it's in the book and it's on his social media somewhere. I, I literally went to social media because it's public. And I took his list and I put it in the foreword of the book saying, this is what I'm going to use as a premise or a thesis for this. And I'm going to show you what they say. Again, you know, it's not, nothing's 100%, but. Yeah, it's definitely a very, very complex uh, topic. And uh, uh, there are many different theories and different approaches. And I also was curious to ask you, in your sort of research of like putting this book together, have you ever encountered any other research methods uh, that people were using in terms except of basic interpretation of paintings of ancient paintings because if you're talking for instance of uh, hieroglyphs or pharaonic uh, time paintings it's still like i have never he- i've never heard about any other let's say evidences other than kind of interpretation oh this looks like this move or this looks like that move um, because to interpret painting which was done so many years and centuries ago it's still wanting to know that it's a personal interpretation and uh, like of course like acrobatic elements they were in many cultures in the entertainment area or um, uh, entertainment 
sphere of like let's say uh, court dances of different times and different like uh, uh, history periods in different countries or some movements that can be interpreted okay it's similar in this dance and in that dance but we are still looking at two-dimensional painting which maybe has been depicted specifically this way not because the movement looked like that but because it was a two-dimensional so that was the way of maybe interpret something else like you know like basically what i'm trying to say is uh, uh, many of the theories and research they're still based wanting a lot on personal interpretation and trying to connect and we are very often getting the sometimes traps of we see what we want to see <laughs> so if you're looking for connections you will find connections in whichever topic or area we are talking about and i'm curious is there any other possible sources of information or tools of research i don't know any treaties any i don't know reading mentions or any other methods that um, maybe not that obvious to general public of like how to really connect things that we have today to things that we had centuries and centuries ago that's very difficult to do i'm sure um i know that Hassan Khalil told me he has a PhD in Egyptian history and culture. So he, when he um, breaks down what he's reading on temple walls or what have you, he's using that information and that PhD that he has. I do not have a PhD in Egyptian history and culture. So as I said, I'm just taking notes and passing out the word because Again, as I mentioned, like, I feel that I should at least bring the Egyptian point of view. And, you know, he won many, many medals for his choreographies and his work, including from Sadat. So he's highly respected within that realm as having that education and that ability. And I would say the same of Dr. Mo. So I can tell you... Um, one of the things that Dr. Mogadawi had pointed out that um, some of the paintings were literally descriptions of choreographies. And he talks about that. I think you can buy it on Belly Stream TV and watch his little um, lecture on there. But um, so I can tell you some of the things that Dr. Mo said, if you're interested. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Okay, so one of the things he said was, um, these are facts that confirm the Egyptian origin of rock sharky, according to him. Ancient documentation, illustrations and temples of Dadara showing steps and movements, including the use of hip, hands, clapping, snapping the fingers, and more. European documentation, so European adventurers who visited the Middle East in 17th, 18th centuries, reported and wrote about it only in Egypt. They gave it the French name, as you know, Danse du Ventre uh -huh. and all this. And then there were um, people who traveled in the 18th and 19th centuries, like Edward Lane, St. John, Foust, Fugler, Moscow, and Gustave Flaubert. I don't pronounce French very well. Oh, my uh -huh. God. Um, then he went on to say just um, the name in Egypt, it's called Rox Belody, which means local or Egyptian. And the word Belody is used in Egypt um, to re represent 
anything Egyptian, but even in the surrounding countries, like Arabic countries in Turkey, they call this dance al-Raqs al-Masri. So Egyptian dance, Masr, mm-hmm. uh, is Egypt. Yeah. So, and older people still use this. So even the, I thought that was pretty strong, the fact that other Arabic countries call it Raqs al-Masri. And like I said, the people that I met at the university here, and many of the Arabs here will tell you, oh yeah, it come, you know, it's from Egypt. But then, you know, we have all these stars. Of course, everybody knows, you know, Samia Gamal, Tahir, Karioka, all this. So even today, people go to Egypt. If they want to be a famous dancer, they move to Egypt, just like they always have. Even if you go back to Kitty or whoever. Um, Egypt was the only country represented this dance at the International Fair in Chicago, 1897, through Fatima, who was an Egyptian Gawazi. They called her Little Egypt. And in Paris in 1970, or 1917, sorry, Shafiq el Uh Who else we have? Uh, okay, so this is really interesting. The classical costume, the two-piece classical costume, they say was designed in Egypt in the 1920s. These guys, okay, I've always heard that it was a result of like, Hollywood influencing them or India influencing them. But these guys are saying it's based on the hip sash belt and skirt of the pharaonic times. Mm. I don't know. I'm not saying this is wrong and this is right, but I'm putting these ideas out there saying basically this is what Egyptian PhDs in the field are saying. It's worth listening to. You know, I'm not saying it's 100% we know. They say 100% we know. So um, all the music, Egyptian music, was produced especially for Rock Sharky, etc. Okay, so I thought this was interesting, too. So now, all right, I don't know if you know about Amy Sultan wants to get Egyptian dance accepted by UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, as like, you know, a protected art form, mm-hmm. a traditional art form. Like they have, I believe, for um, Brazil has it, right? For samba and the Jap- Japanese have it for their, I can't remember the name of it, but some countries have it already. It's like a national treasure and it's protected like the same way the pyramids would be or what have you. So we're going to have our first talk. And if you're interested in joining, I'll get your information later and can add you to the teleconference. But we're going to have our first talk. And the first thing they want to talk about is the name. Should it really be called belly dance? So before we go more in depth, they're going to talk about whether it should be called belly dance or not. And one of the things that Mogadawi said that I thought was really interesting, he said that it was originally called belly, you know, meaning my country, et cetera. The whole dance was called that, Mm -hmm. but then they changed it to rock sharky during the golden era because these, really expensive cabaret owners knew that they couldn't attract the upper classes with a name like Melody. So I was like, wow, okay, okay. So this just gets so complicated. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, that's going to be interesting. So if we don't call it belly dance, are we going to call it uh, oriental dance? Okay. So back to Hassan Khalil, he said, basically, we had the Gawazi, which by their own admission, you can watch 
them talking about it. They say that they came down through Kurdistan and came to through a number of, you know, being in the palaces of Mohammed, you know, I want to say Mohammed, the Citadel, Mohammed, uh, what's his name? (laughs) Mohammed Ali. And then, you know, there were problems and then there was a French campaign and they left and they went to Upper Egypt. Okay, fine. So basically he's saying, though, that during this French campaign time that, you know, and, and the end of the Ottoman Empire and all this kind of thing, they sent the Gawazi as entertainers. So the Turks saw the Gawazi and thought that was Egyptian dance. But mm-hmm. Gawazi is a little different than Egyptian dance. So that's why the Turkish dance is more like Gawazi, which is very rhythmic rather than melodious. And it's less theatrical and it's more just entertainment as opposed to being, you know, theater, play. Like we said, the word for dance is play. It's not dance. It's mm-hmm. not entertainment. It's this yeah. theatrical thing. So, okay, so if we have all that and we look at that, then he says for him, okay, this is his opinion, that was the death of Egyptian dance. Because at that time, under the Ottoman Empire, it became a time when there were harems. So in the ancient times, it was kind of like Indian dance where you were doing something spiritual and trying to get closer to the creator, etc., and connect the earth to the skies, you know, all this kind of thing. So it was very spiritual. You know, like we sing in a choir, they would dance in a choir. But it wasn't in the streets. It was only in these secluded areas in the temple, whatever. Okay, fine. So then he said, you know, now we have dance being used as something to tempt, like the king or, you know, as a provocation. So for him, that was the death of the dance. So when you see someone dancing the old Egyptian style, like we'll say, um, we'll just say Samia Gamal. It's very sweet. It's very innocent. I mean, yes, it's sexy, but it's not provocative purposely. So that's where he said the name became changed to Oriental Dance, and so did the mood or point of the dance, if you will, change to something more provocative. So then, you know, it went back to folklore, which is not so provocative, but now we're in the postmodern era, and obviously there's, you know, all kinds of things happening. So, I mean, which name would we call it? Would we call it Rock Sharky if it, it was just named that? Would we call it Oriental Dance if it contains all that? We probably couldn't call it Belladie because I'm not sure if that wasn't appealing to the upper classes, where's that's going to go in general? Belly dance, nobody likes. I don't know. So this is going to be interesting. Yeah, that's one of those conversations and topics that uh, <laughs> I don't know really like if there is a, an answer good enough for everyone. Like, and uh, part of people will be for one term, part of people for another, and both of the sides will have pretty good uh, pros and cons <laughs> you know like why this and why not that or something else and uh, also it's interesting how you start talking about like all this interconnectedness and um, influences from different sides that like gavazi how they influence belly dance and in different countries how it looks differently uh, then golden era and uh, the effect of um, 
let's say commercializing <laughs> this dance form and putting like on stage for a uh, general audience who were not part of the culture from Italy so more like for foreigners and adapting it we there is also the whole other big uh, topic and the influence of Awalim, which is not that um, much, let's say, researched or popular as a topic among ballet dancers, or there are some people say that, oh, they were just dancers, um, they were just musicians and singers and uh, uh, telling the poetry. Some people say, no, they were dancing and there is even like sort of a dance style of our limb. So, you know, it's, it's really complicated. And um, uh, it's really great that you are putting together all this information. And the reason why I asked the previous question about like, okay, what are the research methods? It's also like, you know, about turning on a little bit of skeptical and more like not even skeptical, but critical thinking which I actually was thinking not even about origins of which country, because I think on this point uh, of history and research in general, we have pretty much evidences to say that oh, it's originated, like the center was like in Egypt for this specific art form. But it's also there are so many discussions and sometimes speculations on the um, how old the dance is and can we call what supposedly they were doing during pharaonic times as something that gave origin later to belly dance or was it somewhere afterwards something else originated you know like there are those are very many discussions and most of the theories as far as i know that's why i also was asking like you <laughs> maybe you have more information about it but most of the theories they're kind of still based on just personal interpretations of uh, trying to find connections and uh, uh, sometimes it's very difficult really to be objective when you're trying to find some connection not to get in the trap of like seeing what you want to see instead of what it is and it's not like I'm even saying like oh this is wrong or this is not it's just more thinking aloud or thinking loud uh, of how really we can get to the truth or like the essence of uh, really like not basing it on on theory, but trying to base it on facts. <laughs> sure. No, that's very important. And I've seen all the arguments. I, I won't say all, but I've seen so many arguments against the idea. But I look at it this way. In India, where I've been to India, and I, they have classical Indian dance, which they believe came down from the temples, and it's something that existed for thousands of years. And it's the same in a number of other Asian countries. They've been doing that kind of thing for a long time. So why would that be something that you, we could accept for India, that they could do it in the temples and that it's been around for thousands of years, but not in Egypt? Like, hello, it just seems like it would be normal. Just the same way like Native Americans here in the U.S., their dances are spiritual. And these dances have been passed down from the beginning of time, because before people could talk, they could dance. So of course they were dancing. Before they could talk, they were dancing. Everybody did. This is a fact. We know this. Mm -hmm. Then rudimentary speech came about, but dancing was always a form of communication. So in the same way that all of these things can be true, let's say Awalim. Okay, Awalim, if it started, I took a number of classes on this and Everything you said about it 
is true. It was only poetry. No, it was only dance. No, it was both. Actually, it was all things true. There was a time in history when they were in the palaces like Muhammad Ali and during this time at the end of the Ottoman Empire, where, yes, they were respected entertainers doing poetry, going to women's quarters of the palace and entertaining women. But after they were cast out of the palaces and there were all these problems, they headed down to Muhammad Ali Street along with the Gawazi and they started dancing because they needed an income. So the point is, is like everything is true, but when? So I remember a dancer came to me once telling me, oh, well, the guys at the club told me that this dance is for seduction and that they used to use it in the harem. Okay, yes, but only one small part of history. So while it's true, it was true under the Ottoman Empire. It wasn't true in the Pharaonic Empire. It wasn't true after the Ottoman Empire when they were doing like folklore styles. So, you know, and even up to more common eras. But all these things can be true at different points in history. Mm. So... Yeah, you're right. I mean, of course, we have to be critical. And anybody with a college education, you know, was trained to think that way. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's very important. And I think that's also why, you know, since I started going to Egypt in 2007, and I didn't really start writing this book until, you know, 2020, I really thought about this a lot before I put it in here. And one of the reasons I chose to quote people with PhDs is because they have a PhD. So yeah, you can go to any Egyptian on the street and ask them their opinion and they all have all these ideas and that's great. I'm all for it and I do it all the time. But when I wrote the book, I tried to be very careful to do research and to use, like, for example, there's different theories about Gawazi, but I found a documentary online where Joseph Mazin the head of the clan down in Luxor talks about how his people came to that era or area. So basically for me, whether he's right or wrong, I went as close to the source as I could, you know, mm-hmm. and still, you know, I mean, these are the soft sciences, you know, you can't measure it and count it all the time. So yeah, there's always going to be people who, who can find a reason and correctly so, to say that, well, you don't actually have proof. Okay, we have tomb paintings, um, and they were doing what is considered dance to most of these PhDs or to all of them that I've spoken to. And to me, it looks obvious enough. If this Indian dancing in the temple comes from ancient Indian dancing, why would it be different? I don't know. Mm. So it, that's how I started my theory, but I waited a long time to think about it. And I agree with you, you know, it's good to be cynical. And if you talk to the people on the street, they'll tell you all manner of nonsense, (laughs) which is good. It's fun. It's entertaining. Yeah, that's so true. And it's not even about cynical. It's because uh, I think... uh, um... I personally also tend to, to think that there are definitely many connections to the ancient forms and, and um, possibly even temple dances uh, from ancient Egypt, etc. But at the same time, like we don't really know 100%. And uh, I guess uh, the the whole inspiration for my, like, you know, like sort of 
critical investigation or whatever, however we call it, is because in um, general media, I remember that I was starting ballet dance when it got very popular in in, uh, in Ukraine. There was a lot of articles in just general, like magazines, uh, female magazines, etc. And they're always talking about like, oh, ancient dance form, ancient dance form. And I was like, afterwards, later, years after, like later, I was like, but we don't really know, we don't have a proof. So it's very possible, but at the same time, like stating like 100%, it's always very like on the edge, like, oh, but do we really know or not? Especially if it's used for as a selling point for this art form, for this like belly dance to attract people. So it's not even about investigating history, it's just grabbing like, you know, whatever kind of, um, lies on the surface and whatever feels attractive uh, looks attractive like using that to grab attention of the audience without really knowing for sure if that's true or not true <laughs> yeah sure and um, that's a good point especially when things are commercialized but you know I mean like when I would go with Dr. Hassan Khalil and he would show us you know how Egyptians put their hand on their head to say hello or what have you. And he would kind of trace the lineage of that back. And I remember doing that also with Rakia Hassan, like this is how we do a move in Oriental and this is how it was done in folklore. And then Hassan takes it back a step further. This is how we do it in folklore. And this is how they did it in Luxor back in the day. And this is, this is how it progressed like Saidi, for example, you know, and then he would like explain the symbolism, you know, very simple things like day and night. And I know, interestingly enough, when I trained with Asala Ibrahim in Iraqi style, they had, um, she said, you know, in Iraq, we have goddesses. Mm -hmm. There's Ishtar and whoever else. And it's pretty easily and well documented there, too, that they have all these statues of all these goddesses. And that the dance there, too, represented like goddesses, because back in the day, we didn't have science and men didn't know where these babies were coming from. And uh -huh, women were these yeah. amazing creatures that would bring babies and life and they would shake their hair around and it would rain. So they thought, you know, so just like the Native Americans do dances for rain, they would do dances with the hair to bring rain, etc. This is what she told us. For me, it makes sense. I grew up, you know, my father used to always take us to the reservations and we would see all the Native American dances. So I grew up with a lot of Native American culture. And to me, it's very, very similar. Mm. Very similar. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you look at ballet, it started, what, in the 1500s? I'm pretty sure that we were doing this uh, in Egypt, long before the 1500s, it's still a very ancient culture. In many ways, they've never changed. <laughs> I feel the Industrial Revolution passed them by. And uh, now, you know, you can see things there from the past that you wouldn't see in developed nations. Not saying Egypt's like third world it's not but it's not as developed as we are here in the west where it's all technology now mm. well that that's true that's that's uh surely also interesting you know like different perspective and angle on seeing the whole like uh, uh 
history and development of art specifically in the circumstances of the whole like uh, history and society of the of the country so uh, where I'm pretty sure at this point everyone who is listening us uh, thinking like okay where can I get the book I want to read more I want to investigate more so what is the best uh, place where our listeners can uh, uh, get more information about it and uh, get your book to dive even deeper in this topic. <laughs> well, it is on Amazon Kindle, and right now it's just on as an ebook because um, I have to. I had to get the uh, margins edited to make the what do you call it? The paper book, mm-hmm. what have you? Paperback. I'm going to make a paperback, and. Um, so yeah, Amazon Kindle, and it's uh, Origins and History of Belly Dance, Wardo Sherazad with Dr. Hassan Khalil. Mm. Oh, that's great. I will also uh, add uh, some links to uh, your social media and, and uh, uh, other resources uh, for people also to connect more easily and find more information about your activities in general. But before we slowly like summarize our uh, conversation today. I also want to ask about your current activities and your current uh, um, classes, uh, uh, things that you are doing. Uh, can you share a little bit more? Like, are you doing a lot of online stuff these days, or are you doing maybe in person back to after lockdowns, like uh, getting back to in person activities, teaching activities, and uh, uh, maybe any upcoming events that you are having soon? <laughs> yeah, I would like to have a lot more. But yes, we are finally back in business. We've been in the studio a while. Every Thursday, 6 to 7 at Arizona Sundance Studio, we have a regular class. And then after, it's kind of a intermediate class. And after the class, I have a troop rehearsal for two hours. And... Um, we're always looking for new members if they're talented and passionate. Uh, passion is more important than anything else, I think. Um, we're always looking for new members. We have a show coming up at Cairo Shimmy Quake in Los Angeles, the 4th of June. And I really love Cairo Shimmy Quake. Every year they bring someone great. And um, we're going to be in the gala show. And we're going to do Saidi. So that's exciting for us. Um, then I'll be in Cairo for a couple months. I'm going to put on an online workshop with uh, Tatiana Shafarostova, who I love and I know her from the festivals. She's a great teacher. Um, then in October, working with Leila Amir of Las Vegas, we're supposed to do um, a festival here in Phoenix in October. I believe the 22nd. We were actually supposed to do one in Las Vegas, but I guess not enough people signed up on the early bird package and she got, you know, a little nervous about that. So I really need people to get back into this dance. Like COVID's over, like I hope. (laughs) (laughs) And I really wish we can bring more foreign dancers here. and, And that's my other thing to really bring our level up in the United States, you know, through knowledge and exchange of ideas with people from other countries will help a lot. Mm. Will be fun, will be interesting, will be amazing. But yeah, that's what I have coming up right now. 
well good luck with your uh, goals and plans and uh, good luck with festival organization i still feel that all event organizers you are extremely brave and courageous uh, courage um, yes courageous people <laughs> All of the events and things like sort of loosen up, and uh, it seems like we are coming back to normal uh, activities, in-person activities, but it's still very risky. So mm-hmm. I take my hat off <laughs> for you for taking like you know challenge and risk of trying to put uh, something together. So and I do also encourage all people to support and. Uh, Do not postpone your registrations for any events because uh, that not only makes organizers be nervous very often yes. on top of already the stress level that they need to deal with by even the idea or intention of organ- organizing an event, but also it sometimes may result in uh, like sort of not happening for the event in general, which I know uh, not only organizers will be sad, but many people, many dancers too, who were planning to attend, but didn't think that, oh, the registration, sooner, the sooner registration you send, the better, first of all, prices for many events you get, but also the more confidence and support and motivation for event organizers you will send. <laughs> That's a good point, really. I mean, and, you know, back to the commercialization, some people talk about, oh, well, this organizer, you know, They're making all this money. And, and to be honest, though, if you don't make money, you can't put on the event. And a lot of us lose money. And people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is if we don't support these events and we don't help these people at least make a little money, are you going to pull out a couple of thousand dollars to make it happen? It's really scary and it's really hard. And um, yeah, let's support them so we can have more events. And like I said, you're not going to learn just from the teacher. You're going to learn from just interacting with all these other amazing artists. You're going to get so many ideas and so much support. And it's it's wonderful. Yeah, that's definitely good. Good point. Um, and where is... Uh the best place for people to follow your activities in general? Do you have any favorite social media or is it all over the platforms? <laughs> well, I try to be on all the platforms, but I can't always keep up. I'm mostly on Instagram, Facebook. I have email, of course, sharazadco at gmail.com. Um, I'll answer anyone, anywhere, pretty much. I'm pretty good about that. So it's under, all of them are under Warda Sherazad. Mm. Very simple. Well, yeah. that's already pretty much uh, half the mainstream social media <laughs> for sure. Uh-huh. And that's a lot of work. Uh, as I said, I will add all the links in the show notes. So for all our listeners, you know, you can easily find all information there and connect to our amazing guest. And before I ask you our final traditional question, I just want to thank you for um, spending this time with us for sharing so much from your personal dance and in general life and from your experience 
uh, and also of course for sharing so much interesting uh, points and facts and observations about history and validance and it's the topic that everyone is definitely curious uh, about and want to research and to know more about origins of validance where how when etc so thank you for sharing this information a little bit uh, here with us and also thank you so much for putting your book together because it's a very uh, informative and very useful and important source and tool for many dancers to dive deeper into this uh, subject <laughs> thank you i really appreciate it i really appreciate it to me I always looked up to you. I always watched your podcast. I follow you and your husband. And really, it's a big honor for me. And I thank you so much. <laughs> well, that's my pleasure <laughs> to, to have you here today. And I'm very excited to know, to hear your answer on our traditional question, which probably you have anticipated, or maybe you left it like not <laughs> thinking about it much and just whatever comes naturally right now in a moment. But the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years? Down the rabbit hole. That's what it is. Like how we would dive down on one subject and keep unraveling new information and the music too. It's like the music unravels. It's very complex. The complexity excites me challenge excites me mystery excites me i that's what i love the music and just it's intriguing it just never ends that's it for today guys but before you go away don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends and if you post it on social media please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast thanks for being with us and i'll see you next week same time same place this episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free.